Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. And if there's ever a passage in the Bible that has things that might not make sense, you picked the best day today. Some of you are very new to studying the Bible, and I'm just going to prepare you. You picked just a delightful day to dip your toe into some of the bizarre stories the Bible includes. For some reason, these 12 verses today are just chock full of some of the most unusual, uh, not repeated scenes in the New Testament. And... Um, What's fascinating is that the very last verse we're going to read today actually ends on this really high note, and it says this, um, Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Now, that sounds good, right? Wouldn't you like that to be what we could say about Baltimore County, that the message of the Lord is spreading widely and it's having a powerful effect? Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't even know, how would we even know that that was happening? What would you look for to see? You know, I'm thinking like some of you, you go into school and you teach. You know, what would it look like for you to be able to come home and say, like, I think God's moving in our school. Or what would it look like for you to say, you know, like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you work at APL. You know, what would that look like for you to come home and say, you know what I mean? Like, what, what would that look like for you to say, I think. God's doing something at my job. Um, you know, some of you have been on the beltway. What would it look like? Happy people. <laughs> happy pe- shiny, happy people holding hands. Yeah, happy people on the beltway. That's, that would be a move of God. Because everybody around here is in an angry hurry. Just everybody. Everybody. Always, everywhere. Us included right? Everybody in an angry hurry. What would that really look like? Let me maybe make it easier. What would it look like or how would you know if the word of God was spreading among Echo Community Church and it was having a powerful impact in the lives of the people within our community of faith? What would we even know to look for? Would I think some of the things I would look for are people who are increasingly resistant to sin, people who are studying the Bible regularly, people who are getting into spiritual conversations with people that God puts in their path. I probably see a hunger for righteousness and holiness, faithfulness. probably see marriages getting healthier families working through some of their issues, probably radical differences in the way that people spend their time, things we purchase, how we treat money, how we view our neighbors, the things we say yes and no to. There would probably be more of an emphasis on purity. There'd probably be a lot of joy, a lot of joy. Peace, stability, I think, 
regardless of the ups and downs, I think there'd be, I think another thing you'd see is a genuine, there'd be deeper friendships being built that are healthy friendships within the community of faith. All these, it's just as the, the word of God spread widely and had a powerful effect. It was, what we see in these 12 verses we're looking at today is God changed a whole city in two years. He changed a whole city. And you're thinking, well, yeah, well, pastor, it, it, it was the Bible times. Exactly, it was. But what do you mean by that? This city was not filled with Christian people. It didn't have large mega churches. It didn't have a lot of Bible colleges and university students. It was filled with superstitious people who dabbled in magic and spells. Who worshipped the god Artemis, who made a lot of money. Their whole local economy was sustained by selling souvenirs to the god Artemis. And do you know how effective this move of God was when you read through the end of the chapter? You find out that in spite of, or maybe because of, or whatever, all the miracles you'll see in here, you'll say, that is revival. When you see, you know, blind people seeing and lame people walking and you see all these spectacular miracles. That's what it's all about. Listen, miracles are awesome. Show me a changed life. Do you know how you knew how effective this was? The souvenir salesmen started losing their business. They call a town meeting. We'll study it in two weeks. They call a town meeting because they're outraged that these Christians have become so effective in getting people to stop worshiping false gods that they're not buying their silver souvenirs and the business people are suffering. Show me that. Well, how do we see God do something like that in our church, in our town? Well, what's interesting is that if you read through this story, um, you might be led to some very challenging conclusions because Luke's going to show us what went on in that town. And some of those things that went on are a little unusual. And so we know the last verse of the section says, and the word of the God spread powerfully and it had a big impact on people. I guess the question is, um, what of the things that we read are for us today and what were just unusual things that God did specifically in Ephesus at that time? So let's read, and I'm just going to read through the passage. It has a little bit of everything in there for you today. Um, we'll read, and then we're going to try and make as much sense out of this as the text will allow us to. It starts off pretty typical for Paul. In fact, even if you didn't read these few verses, and I said, where do you think Paul went at the beginning of the story? Where did Paul usually go? Okay, and what did he usually do there? And, and after he preached for a while, what usually happened? The riots, they kicked him out, he ticked off some people, and then what did he do? He, he left, okay? Well, let's see if that's what happened. Verse 8, then Paul went to the synagogue, okay, preached boldly for the next three months, check, argued persuasively about the kingdom of God, right on schedule, 
But, here we go, some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. Now, it's interesting, in Ephesus, the town had a nickname for what they called the Christians. They called the Christian movement the way. So Paul left the synagogue. Hey, do you remember Paul has this habit? If you just bow up against Paul, you know what he's going to do? He's going to leave. And he's going to go right next door. And what's it say? And he took the believers with him. So all of a sudden, it's kind of going to plan. He goes into town, teaches in the synagogue, has three weeks of awesome church services. Some people get saved. Some other people get stubborn. The stubborn people start arguing with him, and then they start speaking negatively against the way. Paul just says, you know what? We'll take this teaching somewhere else. They leave the synagogue, and then they go to hold daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus or Tyrannus. If you had to guess what Tyrannus meant in English, what word does it kind of look like? Terror or tyrant? Yeah, it actually is the Greek word for tyrant. It's a nickname that this professor's students gave him. I'm sure you have some nicknames right, that your students give you. Just, 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 just Ms. Burke? Burke? Burke the jerk, you said occasionally. Okay, wow, all right. Occasionally. What kind of a teacher do you have to be to get nicknamed tyrant? Well, Paul moves into the hall of Tyrannus, and he starts taking up daily discussions there. Verse 10. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So now it's starting. I'm like, okay, I'm easing in this way. I'm like, here's God, how he's changing a city. It's going through deep, ongoing, daily Bible teaching that students are coming out and hearing, and they're spreading this teaching. They're, they're hearing the lessons. They're getting these spiritual conversations. So far, this seems really applicable. Now, verse 11. God gave Paul the power to perform. Now, these next two words, I don't know why Luke feels like he has to put these two words together. Unusual miracles. As opposed to what? That just the normal miracles? Like, aren't miracles, by definition, unusual? Luke is going overboard. Greek word here is extraordinary, or another way you could... God gave Paul the power to perform miracles of a different kind. Luke's just prefacing us to say what I'm about to share with you is already unusual, but this is unusually unusual. Things that are unusually unusual are not things we should expect to become a pattern. They're supposed to be unusually unusual. Well, what were some of these unusually unusual miracles? Well, here we go. Um, Here we go. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched Paul's skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Hmm. Okay. Uh, (laughs) What what are we going to do with that? Um, Tell you what we're not going to do as a fundraiser. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. I'll unpack that more in a minute. Um, I have a lot of questions about this. I want to know how they figured this out. Was this on purpose or by accident? 
I want to know, did Paul know that people were doing this and then they came to him for his blessing? Did You know the actual Greek word there? It means sweatbands. You know what Paul did to support himself, right? He was a tent maker and he would have tied pieces of cloth around his head and his wrist to keep the sweat from dripping onto the leather. And what it means is that people were taking those things that he had sweat on and putting his sweaty laundry in physical contact with sick sick people. So if they weren't sick already, with the intention that it would do what? Heal them of diseases or even... Or that demons that were possessing them would jump out of them, not if they said in the name of Jesus, come out, but if they got touched by a piece of Paul's dirty laundry. No way should that work. I'm sorry. If I tried something like this today, no way does it work. No way does it work. Bible doesn't tell me I should expect it to work. There's no verse that says, if, if someone among you is sick, Have the elders put their hand on a hanky, give it to a buddy, run into their house, put the hanky across their right eye and stand back. It says, no, we bring them forward, lay hands on them and pray for them. No way should it work. But you know what's crazy? What happens? Works. People were healed of diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Can I just be... This is very hard for me to understand. Is it easy for you to understand? Then we'll keep going. It's belief to a degree. I, would, I, could, I could get on board with that. Verse 13. A group of Jews, if that, was, if that was difficult to understand, here's an easier one. Here's an easier thing. That, this was all happening in Ephesus. You've got Bible studies going on in Tyrant's Hall. You've got people picking up Paul's used sweatbands after work and carrying them around to all the shut-ins and the demon-possessed people, having those people t- bringing those people into physical contact with Paul's sweatbands. They're getting healed and demons are being cast out. And speaking of demons being cast out, how about this group? group of Jews was traveling from town to town Casting out evil spirits. Just having a great summer. I mean, seriously. I mean, is it new in the New Testament for us to see people casting evil spirits out of people? No, Jesus was casting evil spirits out. He sent the disciples out to cast out evil spirits. Jews were going around casting evil spirits out of people. But what you need to see is this group of Jews was trying to do exorcisms differently than the apostle Paul was doing exorcisms. Now, let's be clear. There's no bad motivation in going around and wanting to see people delivered from demons. Like people with bad motives want to see people infested with demons. They don't these people aren't thinking mm, this let's, let's go around and cause trouble. They're trying to do good. Here's their problem. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their Do you see this next word? incantation. Now, what does that sound like? Does that sound like Christian talk? What does, that, what does incantation sound like? Witchcraft and demonic stuff and, yeah, magic. 
They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantations, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Do you see the problem here? You see the problem? Okay, maybe not. I'll help you see it in a minute. Verse 14. The seven sons of Siva. Have you heard of these folks before? This is, a, this is in the game of, uh, you know, it's really, is it really in the Bible, this particular story? Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing just this. They're Jews. They're going around trying to cast out evil spirits. And their approach is they're using an incantation. In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. One time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you? Yeah. Look, evil spirits know who their enemies are. They know. And if you're a person, oh, I don't believe in demons and angels, friend, wake up. They're very, very, very real. Very real. You would be shocked if God opened your eyes and let you see that dimension of spiritual warfare that's going on around you right now blow your mind. Okay? Now, I'm not one who thinks there's an, that every cloud formation is really an angel giving me guidance throughout the day, nor am I one who believes that there's a demon under every lampshade and in every video game. But I am not also on the other extreme that's just naive and thinks that you know, we take the demonic and the angelic lightly. We take it very seriously. The evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you? <coughs> uh, verse 16. Then the man, how many men? The man with the evil spirit. So this demonic spirit that has possessed this unbelieving man. If you're saved, covered in blood of Jesus, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You do not need to be afraid. Okay? However... If you're not saved, it is possible, and I'm not going to go deep into the mechanics of how this all happens because that's not my purpose for today, but it is possible and it happens that a human being can be possessed by one or more demonic spirits and that those spirits' intention is to kill, to harm, and to destroy, to cause damage. And these demonic spirits are more powerful than a human in the flesh. I want you to understand that. Because you'll hear cavalier people sometimes, I'm going to go pick a fight with the devil today. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, afraid of, I'm not afraid of no devil. I understand where you're going with this, but listen. This is not a playground you just go in and play around with to entertain yourself. Satan is stronger than you are in the flesh. Well, I don't read this. Look what happened here. The man with the evil spirit leaped on them. How many men? How does one man leap on seven? Now that you're in that great word picture area, overpowered them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. What's that Discovery show, Naked and Afraid? I mean, I, I'm not going to be inappropriate or crass or anything else, but Luke wants you to see how seriously we need to view 
the demonic realm and the power that Satan has over people who are not covered by the blood of Jesus. That one man, the demon through that man, the demon gave that man such demonic strength that one man beat up seven brothers simultaneously. Beat them up, so beat the clothes right off of them. Bloodied them and send them down the road naked and battered. Now, does that sound like something we should treat lightly? No. Well, what happened next? Because this is just so normal and easy to understand. What happened next? Verse 17. The story of what happened spread quickly. Well, I would think so. Wouldn't you think that that would be the story? Didn't you see those, the, the, the seven sons of Sceva running down the road naked as the day they were born bleeding? and It spread through all Ephesus to Jews and Greeks. Here's what happened, though. It's very fascinating how they responded to this. A solemn, a holy, an appropriate fear descended on the whole city. And the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices, verse 19. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So look, you've got the whole evangelical history playbook right here. You've got book burning. Some of you remember record burnings. Do any of you remember those? You've been, okay, just me. All right. I was a guy there trying to be like, listen, I'll just, you don't have to burn them. Just let me sell them on eBay. We'll make sure that <laughs> you've got a book burning. You've got uh, exorcisms. You've got demonically possessed people getting violent. You've got all kinds of stuff. You've got incantations and formulas and spells and and yet you've got a deep move of repentance sweeping through the church. And you have Christians who up until this scene happens, they had things in their house, books, amulets, jewelry, that were connected to the occult, magic, divination, spells, They were saved, they believed, they had repented, they were studying the scriptures, they were growing in their faith, and simultaneously, they were allowing access in their life. They were still forging partnerships with things that were evil, but they did not think posed any threat or danger to themselves if they were to dabble in it. That has not changed in 2,000 years. I wonder if we were to create an environment right now where the Holy Spirit could probe your... I'm not, I'm not just talking about probing the serpent. Go really deep into your heart and soul right now underneath every layer, behind every drawer, on every web page, through every app, through every podcast, through every YouTube wormhole, through everything that you've put in your ears, in front of your eyes, into your mouth, that you've breathed in. I wonder if we would be able to stand before God any different from the Ephesian Christians. 
I wonder if there are still things in your life that the Holy Spirit wants you to renounce, to put away, to cut off, to discontinue, to burn as it were. Because it's a, it's a way that darkness can get into your thoughts, into your heart, into your life, and damage you and other people. This church didn't see it until this thing blew up, and they're like, we've been treating this whole idea of incantations and the demonic stuff, we've been treating it way too lightly. We need to have a clean break from it. It's the name of the Lord and the name of the Lord only. And if the name of the Lord is in opposition to the way that these things are operating, let's even burn the books. They bring $5 million worth of books, $1 to $5 million, depending on how you do the translation of silver. Then it says, so the message of the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. So in 12 verses... You've got a pretty extreme portrait of what was really going on behind the scenes over the period of 24 months that resulted in a big change in their city. And some of the things are pretty easy to predict. Well, obviously, there's a deep devotion to Bible study. There were some unusual miracles. There's very real spiritual warfare, and all those things resulted in a deep wave of repentance that started inside the church and spread throughout the city. So what do we do with all this? How do we make sense? Which parts of this story are for us today? Which of these things are things that we should repeat and patterns? And which of these things were unique to that day? Let's just quickly walk back through this. I think the first part's pretty obvious. If you go back to to verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 8, verse 8. Paul went to the synagogue, preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some became stubborn. You see, the people didn't start off stubborn. They got stubborn. Right. I found most people who are stubborn didn't become stu- didn't just start stubborn, you became stubborn. Because there's something you resisted and you resisted and you resisted and you resisted to the point where you just became stubborn. Well, some people just did not like parts of what Paul preached, so they resisted his message. But not only that, they made it personal. They made it personal. And they started speaking against the people. Paul said, all right, enough. I can tell this is not a hill worth dying on here, but I'm going to keep teaching. So he leaves the synagogue, takes the believers with him, and finds another place to meet in a discussion hall, a lecture hall. Some people uh, theorize that he rented the lecture hall and use that as an example for, you know, they say this is the first church rented property. Maybe I just don't see Luke recording that detail there, and I'm hesitant to make a doctrine or a precedent out of an assumption. I just don't think that's good theology, but be that as it may. We have some other non-canonical or non-biblical works that record and validate that Paul actually taught there at that time. And they say that he usually taught between the hours of, in that hall between the hours of 11 and 4 or 11 and 3 because in the middle of that workday, they shut everything down, and that was people's downtime. They took a break in the middle of the day, and I'm like, that is a God idea. That would be wonderful. Could you imagine? Like, why? what would it take to get a bill for a siesta passed in, in, in the U.S.? We'd just all take a nap in the middle of the day. Would you be with me on that? Like, just taking it. You see, I, I told you, I've told you before, I've repented for many years fighting naps as a child. Because I'm like, naps are godly. Naps are just wonderful. I like to think I'm always within 10 minutes of a nap. Just give me 
just give me a slab of floor somewhere in 10 minutes and I'm, I'm ready to nap. But what we see is the frequency increased. How often do you think Paul could teach in the synagogue? How frequently? Once a week. But now, how often does he teach in the hall of Tyrannus? Daily. He ramps up his teaching. And what is the content of his teaching? Jesus? Yeah. What's his textbooks? The Old Testament, the scriptures. He's using the scriptures of the First Testament because that's what they had at this point. They don't have the Gospels. They don't have Paul's letters. He's literally living them out. He has the scriptures of the Old Testament. Think about this. This dude is teaching four or five hours every day, every week for two years, the scriptures to brand new believers. He's teaching such exciting topics as Leviticus and Numbers to people who choose to take their downtime and instead of siesta-ing, they go sit in the tyrant's hall and they say, teach us. Because a teacher can only be a teacher if they have what? Students. The only way Paul can teach every day for two years is if he has students. These students are not paying tuition. They're not getting degrees. They're not able to parlay their education into a better job offer. What would motivate a person for four hours a day, every day of the week, for two years, to voluntarily sit under the teaching of this short, (laughs) bow-legged by some accounts, there are actual historical accounts that say he had a unibrow, people who actually wrote of his physical appearance. Not necessarily easy on the eyes. He even writes of himself a lot of times that he's not much in physical appearance. What would motivate anybody to sit under that kind of teaching, that motivated, that interested to learn for that long? What do you think would motivate a student to do that? Holy Spirit? Okay. I'll come back to that because I'm going to press you on that answer. The Holy Spirit... What is it that the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you, though, that would... The Holy, did the Holy Spirit get you up today and drive you here against your will? No, okay. But, okay, but if it is the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy, what is the characteristic of the Holy Spirit that's manifest then? Hunger for what? Hunger for what? For truth, for the word. To know God better, to know Jesus better, Right? Would you, okay, so are we agreeing that this is the Holy Spirit? This is the Holy Spirit inside of them. Well, when did they get the Holy Spirit? You did not know you're helping me preach, but you really are. Um, when, When did they get the Holy Spirit? When they believed, right? Did you get the Holy Spirit when you believed? Do you know you have the Holy Spirit in you? Now, do you have a different, what version of the Holy Spirit do you have? They had 1.0. What do you have? 3.0? That's the right answer. 
in my analogy. You have 1.0. Now, you told me the Holy Spirit is the one that, it's the Holy Spirit, obviously, for people that would be so hungry and thirsty for the word that even in their non when they have free time to themselves, they are sitting under the teaching that they're getting. And if you keep reading, it says everybody in the whole region heard about it. They didn't hear about it because they all crammed into one little tiny meeting room. They heard about it because the students who were sitting there went out and told other people about it. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Do you have Holy Spirit 1.0? And what's wrong with you? What's your problem? How come you don't, how come you're not hungry? Well, it's different. How is it different? You're that much smarter than they are because you were born 2,000 years later? Well, I've got an important job and I can't, really, that much more than them? You know how much effort it took for them just to go to the bathroom? to cook a meal. Like, beep, 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 beep. Well, I, that's too much. The beeping is too much work. I'll just spend $55 to get takeout. But I don't have money to give to the church. No, you know what I mean? It's just, what Holy Spirit do you have? If we agree, Pastor, I didn't know you were trapping us. I didn't trap you. You gave me an answer I wasn't expecting. I was like, oh, I'll use that. If the Holy Spirit in them stirred up an appetite in them for something they didn't have naturally, and that inspired them to say, you know what? I want to know God better. I want to know more about Jesus. I, where do I go to get it? Now, see, you can just pull out your phone. Beep, 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 you know, you have 37,000 translations at your fingertips. Praise God for that. They didn't have that. All they had was tyrants, discussion hall, Little unibrow guy over there, a bunch of scars on him. Not air conditioned. No PowerPoint. No padded seats. Just a man passionate about Jesus who knew the scriptures, who was willing to pour hours of his time into their lives when they weren't working and take them line upon line, precept upon precept, and teach them about God, teach them about Jesus, teach them about salvation, teach them about sin, teach them about evangelism and repentance and confession and holiness and walking upright before the Lord. I'm just going to turn this. Anybody have a hanky or an apron? We can lay on that thing. Get that thing to settle down. They were just hungry to know more about God. Well, how do you have... How does God change our city? Show me a group of people that are just hungry to know God better. And you'll find a way. You have exactly as much of God as you want. No more, no less. It's the truth. 
You just told me, well, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in them that created a hunger in them to know God better. Yeah, and they rearranged their lives. Yeah, well, their lives are not as complicated as mine. Come on. Don't be so ignorant. You do what you want to do when you want to do it. You spend what you want to spend on the things you want to spend on. You make time for what you want to make time for. They made time because they wanted to. They wanted to know God better. And the little taste that they got was not enough. There was a deep, deep, deep devotion to studying the truth of the scripture. Let me keep going. I spent too much time here. Verse 10. This went on for the next two years, which is a long time and it's not that long, right? It's a long time and it's not that long. The people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul, uh, heard the word of the Lord, that's awesome, spread everywhere. The real work of the ministry, Paul couldn't have done that by himself. The real work of the ministry was when the people who got the good teaching, they were thinking about it. And when they left, they carried those conversations out in the circles. That's where real ministry happens. That's where the real ministry of Echo gets done. It doesn't really get done. The main ministry of what happens here doesn't happen on Sundays between 8 and 1230 it happens all throughout the week as you guys are going about your lives. It happens all throughout the week when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're with your friends, when you're with your family, when you're commuting, when you're interacting with people, when you're saying that prayer in between meetings, when you're, when you're carrying the light of who Jesus is with, into every room, into every conference, into every conversation that you have. That's when the real work of ministry gets done. And that's when the real work of ministry was happening in Ephesus. But then we shift gears. Verse 11, we get this cool phrase. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. Here's what I want you to see. We're going to go back in the handkerchiefs and aprons again. But who initiated, who gave permission for this kind of unusual miracle thing to start happening? Where did it originate? God. I want you to see that. This was not... Paul, you know, calling an audible and doing his own thing. God, it's, it's, it's very, God gave Paul the power to perform this. God puts his approval on this. Now verse 12, here we go. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched Paul's skins were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Now it's ironic to me that right next to each other, we see two very unusual ways people were attempting exorcisms. There was one group that was putting sweatbands on people, and there was another group who were saying, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. One was successful, one wasn't. In my mind, if I'm saying God kind of gave, you know, God gave some grace for one of them, I would have thought it would have been the people that were at least using the name of Jesus. But it wasn't them. It was the ones that were taking the sweatbands around. Well, pastor, why one and not the other? Well, I think the only obvious answer I can give you is that in one case, God says, I give my permission. And in the other case, these people say, we don't even have a relationship with God. And in that case, God did not give his permission. God didn't give these itinerant Jewish exorcists permission to use his name. And the reason why is because they had no relationship with him. 
On this side, you have people who have relationship with God, but they're superstitious. They live in a city. Boy, we are really, is that every kid today? Like, I'm, not, I'm looking at this, listen, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm waiting. I've got my kids' slips up here. I'm sorry, if they put my kid's name up there, they're going to be in bad shape because, I mean, I can't, I can't go. So you will, we'll all take turns. We'll all take turns today. It's the humidity. I'm just going to say that. It's the humidity or something. But they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits. Were expelled. So in one case it works, in one case it doesn't. This is just strange. Now, I've heard some people say this is really weird and miracles are weird. And therefore, Luke is showing us how weird miracles are and we shouldn't expect that. I heard a pastor of a church of 8,000 people explain this passage that way. That is not at all what Luke is saying. He does not use the word strange or weird. He says unusual, extraordinary. He gives you one sentence. He says it happened. Now, the point is, I don't ever see this happening after this in the New Testament ever again. Because some people might say, oh, is Luke introducing to us some additional strategy that the church should use for the rest of history to have people get healed? Just find one of the apostles or the pastors, get them to sweat on something, take that thing in proxy and put it on somebody and magically, you know, healing power will jump from this person to that to this. No. Although I will say in, in Christianity, we love to try and manufacture and engineer formulas. And we just say, hmm, if that church over there is growing and they're having results, let's look at what formula they're using and let's just take that formula and repeat it over here like abracadabra and let's see if it works. That's not at all what is, what is going on here. I don't see that in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes, haven't you ever had a situation in your life where God just answered one of your prayers or gave you a breakthrough and you're like, no way should that have just worked. No way should what have, no way should this thing have happened. As messed up as I was at that point, why did God even listen to my prayer? But you find, well, but he was just unusually merciful to you in that moment. Like, look, uh, this is not so different as to, wasn't there a woman with an issue of blood a few stories ago back in Jesus' time? And what was, how did she get her miracle? She, she touched a, a hem of a garment. A, yeah, a shawl. A, a part of, of Jesus' clothing that had come in contact with his skin. And Jesus felt virtue, power go out from him into her. How about Peter had some things where he was walking down the street and even when his shadow touched people, they got healed. None of those things were common. They weren't normal. But if you look at every one of those stories, you know what it was? That fabric, that shadow, there was nothing magical about it. All it was was it became a point of contact for someone with very weak but just enough faith to say, I'm not entirely sure if it is the Lord's will, will to heal me, but I have enough faith that if I can reach out and connect with it, I believe. Now, we have to be careful and not make a pattern out of something that the Bible says wasn't supposed to be a pattern. Okay? This is an act of mercy on God's part. In other words, I mean, I'll just be very specific. In no way, shape, or form 
can I co-sign, endorse, sign off on modern-day thieves calling themselves evangelists who for 50 or or $100 will send you a scrap of fabric that they prayed over that in exchange for your money, you can put on your sick cousin and they can get better. Well, Pastor, I heard a story of how, listen, if that evangelist cared that much about your sick cousin, why do they need $50 to heal him? Do you know what irritated Jesus about the temple? It was the thieves. You know what they were doing? They were offering sacrifices to poor people who didn't have enough money to bring their own sacrifices, and they leveraged that guilt that those poor people had. Those poor people were desperate. They wanted to come in and worship, but they didn't have the means to worship. And so these people, looking like they were doing a good service, were selling them sacrifices at inflated prices to prey on people who were spiritually desperate, and they were using it to make money. That's what made Jesus mad. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme for evangelists. This is not a pattern. God gave Paul the power to do that. It's something unique that worked for a season. Well, are you saying God could never do it again? I'm not telling God what he can or he can't do, but Luke goes out of the way to make sure you understand. I'm going to write something that was very unusual. In no way, shape, or form is he saying, and this is the new pattern from now on. He's showing us how a merciful God saw the feeble faith of a superstitious town and was gracious and merciful enough to meet them in a creative way that probably would never work anywhere else, but God just did it. And we need to have a heart that's open to receive anything that comes from God without making, out of, without making a pattern out of things we don't have biblical precedent for. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate it for you. The best way that I can, as quickly as I can, is um, 2003 to 2007, I was youth pastor in suburban Atlanta. And I worked with high school and middle school students. I, I was over the whole youth department. And so I, I was the high school pastor, but we also had a full, full-time middle school pastor. So when we had youth service, the middle school kids were in one auditorium and the high school kids were in um, the sanctuary of our old building. So we, we were in that room. So I had a couple hundred high school students that came in there every Wednesday night. One of the expectations of my job from my pastor to me was that our students would raise money every year to give to a missions organization called Speed the Light. And Speed the Light still exists today. It's an Assemblies of God organization that provides vehicles for missionaries serving overseas. And so, um, you know, the, the only requirement for my passion was you can't do fundraisers. We have too many ministries in this church to compete for fundraisers. You can only receive offerings from your students, free will offerings, and only on Wednesdays. So for whatever reason, offerings just weren't going great. I can't imagine why. We're the second poorest county in Georgia, and it's 15 to 18-year-olds, and we're passing the offering bucket around on Wednesday nights and getting you know, $4, $6. And I'm like, this is just not going well. So I don't know where the idea came from. I'm hesitant to blame the Holy Spirit. Maybe I don't know what it was. I'm like, I've got to do something to change this up. So one week, just kind of on the spur of the moment, I said, you know what? We're not passing the offering plate tonight. Put the offering plate down here. Tonight, we're going to do offering differently. We're going to set the offering plate down front. I said, all right. Somebody in the room is going to give $100. Who's it going to be? And I'm just like, I'm going to die on this hill. 
ultimately, finally, I guess, you know, one kid gets up and comes down front and puts $100. I was shocked that it worked. I'm like, man, these kids are carrying more money than I thought. And that's, I said, all right, that's great. How about $50? Who could give 50 tonight? And I Dutch auctioned my way the whole way down to dollar bills and pocket change. Okay? And literally, kids had them get up out of their seats, come down front, yes, publicly, yes, in front of everybody, yes, all cash. This was, this was back when people knew what cash was and carried it around. And they, we got like $120 in the offering that night, or $140, something like that. I was like, wow, this must be working. I'm going to try this again the next week. I know you're thinking, like, I'm not going to a place with this where I'm saying, and this is how we're going to start taking offering at Echo. No reason that that should have worked. I think about it, I cringe. I'm like, why did, what was I thinking? Publicly giving your money in front of everybody where the left hand and the right hand and every other eye could see what was going on? Like, what, what was I thinking? Like, but the next week I'm like, well, let me try it and let me start with $500. And we started with 500 and believe it or not, some kid came with 500. Two months later, one night, I said, let's start with 1,000. And one boy, Jonathan Davis, came down. Like, he brought $1,000 to youth group. Like, you could get robbed. Like, you shouldn't do that. Over 52 weeks, we, we did that every week for a year. They gave $71,000 to Speed the Light. We bought a bus for Cry Africa, which is an organization based out of Kenya that travels um, throughout the eastern part of Africa delivering uh, humanitarian aid to different uh, communities where they're treating children uh, in in the AIDS that that are stricken with AIDS, HIV. Well, what I didn't know at the time was that the national office kept track of this, and we ended up being the number three. Out of all 14,000 churches in the U.S., our kids were the third highest, they they were the third highest giving youth group in the whole country for missions that year. So I started getting calls from people wanting to fly me out. Can you come speak at our fundraising banquet? We need you to tell us the secret as to how you raised that much money from your students. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this can't be. I can't, I can't tell them. So I got one invitation. Well, I got several. I went to the first one, and the other one's canceled after that one. Uh, and they, they, you know, they didn't know how, and I just told, I told them, I was like, well, we, we just received offerings. And I tried, like, please don't ask me any more questions. Please don't ask me any more. Like, well, how did you receive the offerings? I was like, well, maybe a little bit differently. And then I, they pressed, and I told them, I was like, we named a dollar amounts, and we started at a big one, and we worked our way down every week, and we always got down to dollar bills and pocket change, and we just tried to find a way that all the students would get involved with it, and so you had people get out of their seats and bring their offering forward? Yes. In cash? Yes. You named dollar amounts? Yes. Everybody knew what the others were giving? Mostly. We can't do that. And I'm saying, you probably shouldn't. I don't think that that's a pattern for how churches should take offerings. And at the same time, I can't argue with the fact that for a year, God used that and did something really special in the lives of those students. You know, this church today supports missionaries who are in that youth group at that time. God's called to the mission field. Say say what? It was that season. It was just a season. Trust me, I tried the same thing the next year thinking, we're going to do 150,000. It didn't work. Because I tried to make a pattern out of something that wasn't meant to be a pattern. You know, there's a difference. There's a difference between birthing something and borrowing something, but that's a whole different message for a whole other day. But all I want you to see is 
every now and again, God's going to do some things in your life. You're going to be like, you know what? I don't even, God was under no obligation to do what he just did. That shouldn't have worked. But it did. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Let me keep, I got to keep trucking along here. We got to finish. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, because we can't leave this story alone. Come on, you want to, you got to find out what happened with these jokers. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Next verse. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this, but one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? Next verse. Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. This is crazy. So somewhere along the line, these Jewish exorcists observed Paul doing exorcisms differently than they were. And the thing that captured their attention was that he would always do what he did in the name of Jesus. He would use that phrase. They're thinking that's the formula. That's the incantation. That's the abracadabra. In other words, they're thinking exorcism is a formula. Step one, do this. Step two, say that. Step three, put your hand here. Step four, watch watch demon go. Step five, slap high fives, pronounce them clean, move on to the next house. They're looking at Christian growth, spiritual growth as a formula. What they don't have is a personal relationship with Jesus. They see Paul saying, in the name of Jesus, and Paul's not using it as a formula. He's stating it as a matter of fact. God the Father gave Paul permission to use the authority of the name of Jesus whenever he needed it. And that's no different from the same authority God the Father gives every one of his sons and daughters. When you get saved, when you have a relationship with God through Jesus... The Holy Spirit is in you. You are in him. You have divine permission to use the name of Jesus, to use his name and authority when the enemy stands against you. These men, though, tried to take a shortcut. They just tried to make it a formula. They had no personal relationship with Jesus. They just knew somebody who had a relationship with Jesus. And they tried to use that. They tried to use Jesus as like a third party, and it didn't work. And that demonic spirit threw that man, overpowered them and beat them and stripped them naked and bloodied them and they lost and they were embarrassed and they were ashamed. I want to tell you something, and this might be hard for you to hear. You cannot get into heaven believing in the Jesus your church believes in. You can't get into heaven based on the faith of your parents or of your grandparents. You cannot get into heaven based on just your affinity with someone. You need to know Jesus for your own self. You have to know him personally for you. The seven sons of Sceva, they didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and they tried to use a formula. They tried to use a formula to repeat things, and it didn't work. It didn't work. But how did the church respond? Let's look at verse 17. The story of what happened spread quickly through all Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. That verse troubles me a little bit. Who confessed their sins? So here's what's going on in this church. 
several things are happening simultaneously. Lots of people are being saved. You have lots of new Christians. They're really deeply devoted to studying the Bible. They're understanding the scriptures. More people are being saved. There's an increase in spiritual warfare, and their eyes are being opened to it. And now a solemn fear, a healthy fear, a healthy fear of God and a healthy fear of the demonic. Not that we need to be terrified of Satan, we don't need, but there needs to be an awareness that he's not just some little nuisance off to the side. He's real, he's powerful, he hates Jesus, he hates Christians, and he fights dirty. And it says many who were believers were confessing their sinful practices. In other words, at the same time of all these good things going on in their lives, there were believers who were still stuck in sin. Verse 19. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So what you have here are Christians who were saved and in their homes, they still had objects, books, materials linked to darkness. And up until this event happens of the man being overpowered, the seven men being overpowered by the one demon possessed man, they're thinking that stuff in my life is harmless. That series, those books, those albums, those whatever they are. They're harmless. I can keep them and still be good with God. They're not that destructive. They're not that powerful. They certainly won't sabotage me. And then their eyes are open to see what just one demonic spirit does to seven grown men. And they say, boy, boy, are we wrong on this. The name of the Lord is high and sacred and mighty. Holy and should not be linked to some of these things we have in our home. Nowhere in this story does it say that the church mandated a book burning. People did it voluntarily because they wanted to. People felt convicted. And so they brought these books and they burned them. And so all these things working together in, in, in concert is what precipitated a great move of God in that city. There was absolutely a deep devotion to Bible study. There was additionally some unusual miracles. God was just doing some unique things in that church, in that city at that time that we've not seen since, but it was for a purpose at that time and age. And it didn't just produce a bunch of people chasing around miracles. It produced deeply changed lives. So much so that in the next story, the whole economy, the whole idol-making economy in that town was drying up because of salvations. That's why I say miracles are... I love miracles, don't get me wrong, but I want to see how that miracle changes your life. I don't want us just going around chasing episodes and experiences and bailouts. How about a deep, deep connection with God in a moment that changes your life forever? Where he straightens some things out in you, where he sets you free for some stuff. Show me transformed lives. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. So let me just give you these, these four little statements I wrote down. 
these are my takeaways from these different sections. And I'm sorry if you feel like I'm definitely feeling, I'm feeling the fever come up and I'm feeling everything. I'm sorry, I'm, I want to put you out of your misery. Let me finish this here. Stay close to your Bible. It is the foundation for discipleship. That's what I got from those first three verses, four verses. Stay close to it. Read a little bit of your Bible every day. A little bit of it. Listen to it. Pastor, I'm not a good reader. Okay, listen to it. Find time for it. A little bit every day. Well, Pastor, I don't understand it. Here's what you do. Pause, close your eyes before you open up that Bible, before you listen to it, because that experience is going to be different than anything else you read during the day, different than when you're reading your news browser or scrolling Instagram or wherever it is that you go for your stuff, watching the highlights on ESPN or YouTube. You're going to look differently. You pause for a moment. You say, Holy Spirit, help me understand what I'm about to read. Amen. That's it. We'll change the whole thing for you. I promise you, it will. It will. Study a little bit of the Bible every day. It's the foundation for discipleship. Second thing. Uh, I took a little grammatical liberty here, so forgive me. Miracles are awesome. Life transformation is awesomer. I don't want us to be a church that's just chasing around the next hanky, the next gold dust, the next banner, the next this. All kinds of stuff comes and goes, and that's all well and good. I love miracles. I love when God breaks through and does something unexpected. But you know what I really want to see? I want to see lives transformed. That's what I want. That's, that is the evidence of salvation is a changed life. That's the evidence. Not what's the last miracle that you got. It's is your life different? I love this statement. I heard it when coming across it. It's not about how high you bounce, but how straight you walk when you come down. All kinds of people want to come in. If we just bounce around and have a good time in church, my life's going to change. That's all well and good. But if I see you an hour later and you're the same crooked person that walked in here, I question what happened when you bounced. Right? I need a breakthrough. I need a breakthrough. I need a breakthrough. You get your breakthrough. You're happy for a day. The next week, you're just as miserable as you were. Oh, I need another breakthrough. Show me life transformation. That's what was going on in this city. Yes, there were miracles, but there was life transformation. They started studying the Bible in their free time. They started having conversations with people about spiritual things. They stopped going to the bars. They stopped buying all the idols. They stopped paying into the idolatry trade to the point where those artisans started losing work because the gospel was spreading throughout the city. May that be true in our lives too. Number three, the enemy doesn't respond to the formulas you've learned. He responds to the Jesus you know. I can't give you formulas. Some of you just need to be released from treating your... God isn't requiring you to get your prayer in a certain formula so that he answers it. Maybe I'm praying with the wrong words in the wrong order. Seriously? This is a God who knelt down and let people touch a sweatband and receive a healing because that was all the faith that they had at that point. If you have Jesus, you don't need any formulas. If you have Jesus and you walk close to Jesus and you know Jesus, when the enemy stares you down, when you're dealing with a satanic opposition, you just say, in the name of Jesus Christ that I know, you back down, he'll have to listen. Says the Bible. You don't need formulas. You just need Jesus. And you can't borrow those. You have to birth those personally through a relationship with Jesus. And finally, number four, true repentance that we saw in this town is not just confessing, but it's renouncing our sins. You can confess something without renouncing it. Christians do that all the time. In other words, they feel guilty that they sinned, 
They have no intention on renouncing the sin they're confessing. They just don't want to feel bad between now and the next time they commit the sin. That's bondage. That's absolute bondage. It's misery. And if there's anything that I feel so strongly of the whole message in the last service and in this service, it's simply that I cannot escape what I feel the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in your life and in the life of this church. He wants to do a deep scrubbing of our lives. You show me a church, show me a group of believers who are hungry to know God better and who ask him to scrub them clean where God won't move powerfully. But you take either one of those two things off the table, your future's limited. It's one thing to gain all kinds of knowledge. And my, my sense around Echo, as your pastor, we're not deficient in Bible knowledge. I mean, goodness, I've met so many of you. Most of you are more educated than I am, no doubt. I'm trying to catch up, but some of y'all just keep going and you're hard to catch. I don't think our great deficiency is Bible knowledge. But I wonder if, if we're interested in being pure. I wonder if we're, if we're interested in having our personality defects scrubbed clean by the Holy Spirit. If, I wonder if we really want our pride to be removed and our abrasive, harsh personalities to be washed for our, to be more humble and less ambitious we really want to walk clean before Jesus as much as we want to know the things and know the secrets and know the when I see this church wanted both they wanted to know the word they wanted to know God but they realized it comes at a cost and that cost is saying I have to renounce my sin and what's okay for the person next to you might not be okay for you and I see a church that was willing to say in light of what we've seen, in the light of what we've understood. Holy Spirit, if there's anything in my home, if there's anything in my life that could be destructive to me, if I've left one side door open to the enemy that doesn't need to be open, I would rather close it and give up that liberty than be vulnerable to him. I'm telling you, you have more time on your hands, more isolated time, 8, 9, 10, 12 hours of screen time a day, you mean to tell me there's not some of those minutes of screen time that you're, open, you're not opening gateways to the enemy in your life? You mean that of all the things you entertain yourself with, there's not some of those things that are harmful for you that you think, I can handle it because I'm mature? Are you looking for how much you can get away with or how, much, how close you can get to Jesus? Well, pastor, how much, how much can I, you know, I'm always looking for how, how much of this can I indulge in before it's really sin? That's the wrong question. That's, would you go to your spouse and say, how close to an affair can I get before you divorce me? I got interrupted there. Let me say that again. Would you go to your spouse and say, how close to an affair could I get before you divorce me? How long would that marriage last if you asked that question? Not very long. Why do you say to Jesus, how much of these other things can I dabble into before you're going to be upset with me? 
and then come and say, I love you with all my heart. Does that sound like love? No love that I know. I know that's not easy to hear. I want God to do something deep in your life. But you can't skip over repentance and a heart that craves purity and a willingness to renounce the things that displease the Lord. How can we speak to a society that has no idea what right or wrong is if we're still debating that in here? Do you feel the conviction in the room? I'm afraid to move. It's okay. Let's listen to that. Let's pray. Worship team, will you come? I wasn't intending for this to get heavy. I was trying to keep things light. Maybe it's just, I, maybe I'm running a fever. I don't know. But I don't want to miss this moment. I'm not going to prolong this. But I have a sense that even as I'm talking today, the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on some specific things in specific people's lives. And you need to repent. You need to renounce. I don't mean that you need to come to me or another pastor and share all your deepest, darkest secrets and that we tell you something you need to do to be better. I will say there is value, not only in asking for God's forgiveness, but in confessing your sins to somebody that you trust spiritually in order that they can pray for you and help you move towards recovery and full healing for that. Not to pile on, but to hold you accountable and to encourage you forward. I might be alone. I don't think I am in this church. I have not given up believing God for a sovereign God of move. Sovereign God of move. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. Sovereign move of God in our town, in our city. Not given up on it. But where I've really focused is I would love to see a sovereign move of God across Echo Community Church. Pastor, what do you mean? I don't know. A sovereign move of God that looks like repentance, holiness, Freedom, peace, joy, maturity, gladness, kindness, compassion, friendship, restoration, recovery, fullness. Some of you, I, I, want, I would love to be able to see you enjoy the fullness of this life. I'd love for you to be just broken free from the anguish that you carry. I have no formula. It'd be simpler if I did. If I knew we could just sing a certain song, worship a certain style, have a certain length, preach a certain pastor's message, just borrow his notes, and read. it doesn't come that way. It's birthed from a deep desire and a passion to know God better and to be clean before him. And so in this moment, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just leading, I want to lead a general prayer of repentance today. If there is sin in your life that needs to be surrendered, talking there, some of you need to repent just for, just for being mean, just mean-spirited, being short with people, being dismissive. Men, some of you need to repent of chauvinism. The way you treat women is just not right. It's not fair. It's not biblical. The way you look down at people who aren't at your same place in life, aren't as educated or smart as you, for thinking you're better than other people that you see by the eye test. There's subscriptions that need to end and be canceled today. 
There's forgiveness that's been withheld you need to release to somebody today. There are hurts from other Christians in your life that are causing you to carry grudges against other people who have done you no wrong. There's healing for you today, but you gotta release that to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we're your church. We lay our hearts bare before you. Forgive us. Please forgive us. Scrub us clean. If you'd like to come into God's kingdom today, you just have to believe and repent. Believe you need to be saved. Believe you're not perfect, that you've sinned against God, that you can't make yourself live the better life you want to live, but you're not living. You have to believe Jesus can save you. There is sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, him taking your penalty so that you can receive his righteousness, his resurrection from the dead, the proof that God received the payment. And you have to believe he will save you if you ask. Repent and believe. Why don't you stop fighting him today? Why don't you just say yes to Jesus today? Put all, just put that weight down. Just put it down. Take the new life. Take it. Receive it. It's yours. Just tell him. Use your words. Tell him right now. Tell him right now. Tell him. Tell him you repent. Tell him you believe. Ask him to save you. He will. Can you be more specific, Pastor? Tell me how I come into the kingdom of God. Sure, just pray a prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm ready for change today. Holy Spirit, come live in me. I believe in you. Please save me. Live in me. Make me new. If you prayed that prayer with me today and you meant it, you are gloriously saved. You're gloriously saved. Two adults, two adults in our 9 a.m. service gave their hearts and lives to Jesus today and experienced salvation right here in this room. I wonder if some of you experienced that today. If you did, you don't have to do another thing. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I do want to give you an opportunity just to acknowledge that. If you prayed that prayer with me today, I'm going to count to three. I just want you to lift up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your head right back down after I acknowledge you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to acknowledge that and celebrate with you. If you prayed that prayer with me, one, two, three. Anybody pray that with me today? Okay, buddy, thank you. See that little hand over there? Anybody else? All right. I'm going to ask a second question. Holy Spirit's challenging you to renounce something today. He's exposing something that you 
want to leave under the blood of Jesus today. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise your hand right now. Yeah, I, I, I need to confess and repent of some things. Awesome. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Come on. Jesus, I pray right now in this church, you don't move us to a different place spiritually until you're done dealing with our hearts because we want to create an environment that your Holy Spirit can move in freedom. And when we walk free from sin and we walk holy and pure before you, that means we can move in some other areas of dimensions of your glory and your greatness. But that's a prerequisite. I pray that we'll have a hunger and an appetite to walk close to you every day. That we'll do daily fearless moral inventories with your Holy Spirit where we invite you to search our hearts daily. Almost like we go to the dentist every day so that things don't build up. And we believe that we're going to see an increased dimension of your spirit in our lives together and as we go our separate ways. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.